I'm Fran Burwell. I'm one of the vice presidents here at the Atlantic Council. Uh, if I could encourage you, I think there are still some seats here and there, so if people can please squeeze in. Um, thank you all, first off, for surviving the other event and getting into this room. Um, and apologies for any confusion that might have created. Uh, I want to welcome you all here to the Council on a very important day. We're here to discuss the much-anticipated launch of the EU's Digital Single Market Initiative. Uh, this event is also the first for a new project we are launching at the Council focused on building a transatlantic digital marketplace. Over the course of this year, we will be looking at what the possibilities are for such a combined digital space, what are the obstacles it will face, how do we get from here to there. And obviously, one of the first things that needs to happen, or one, this cannot happen without there being some removal of barriers within Europe, and hence the importance of the initiative launched in Brussels today. Um, today's event is entitled Breaking Down Barriers, Turning a Transatlantic Challenge into Opportunity. For us, this means starting to shift the sometimes toxic transatlantic dialogue around digital issues into something more productive. We hope to spark through these, these meetings and others a new era of transatlantic cooperation on the topic of huge and growing importance, something that is at the heart of our mission here at the Atlantic Council. Um, considering this is an event about digital issues, I should mention that we are tweeting this event using the hashtag hashtag ACDigital, and we encourage you to participate. We are also videoing this event, if that's a verb, and we'll post it to YouTube after the fact, so you are welcome to share it with colleagues in Europe, Silicon Valley, wherever. Um, the digital economy offers both Europe and the United States significant opportunities for future economic growth, especially if they can be better integrated together. I read that uh, as part of the commission uh, package, that the unified European DSM would be worth an additional 4% of GDP, an extra $1,500 or euros, I'm not sure which, but they're about the same now, yes, <laughs> for each European citizen. Um, but yet digital issues are, as I've mentioned, a source of strong transatlantic discord at times. Privacy, taxation, market share, many other matters, especially when you throw into the soup things such as revelations over NSA surveillance and ongoing European antitrust efforts. Um, as the European Commission launches its digital single market efforts to better integrate the European digital economy, I think it's important to remember that there's no such thing as a digital island, even if it is the size of a continent. The internet has made borders truly porous, and one indicator of the EU's success as a digital powerhouse will be how it connects outside its own physical space. But neither is the digital economy just the province of the IT companies or tech companies. Many of those are represented here, uh, but so are mainstream companies who rely on the internet to manage supply chains, who must transmit but also protect personal data, and who must protect themselves from cyber attacks. In Congress, the Trade Promotion Authority bill that we're watching very closely is full of references to the protecting the free flow of data and underlines the importance of these issues uh, to the global economy. Uh, yet the US and Europe, two leading digital powers, are far from unified. We will disagree. 
I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, we're friends and we have disagreements as any friend or actually any family would have. Um, but it's worth having this conversation. And now we have this very interesting proposal to have a conversation about and to see how it is going to affect American companies in Europe as well as American citizens. And as, but also, of course, building first on what will happen in Europe. Europe and the US face an important choice. We can work together in creating a digital market, or we may find our leadership in the digital world has eroded. And the Commission's initiative for a European DSM is a key first step. There's no one better placed in Washington today to tell us about this initiative and the ambitions behind it than our first speaker, Ambassador David O'Sullivan. I hope you've all seen his very good piece, excellent piece, in Wired magazine. And I just want to say that, I mean, David is one of the, Ambassador O'Sullivan is one of those people who really knows how Brussels works. And I think that that, for good or bad, and, <laughs> and I would point to the fact that he has been involved in this issue for quite some time, both from a policy level, and also, of course, down to the real hardware level of figuring out how to get the internet in the new EEAS building when, in your last job. Uh, where he served as Chief Operating Officer of the European External Action Service. But he's also been Director General for Trade uh, from 2005 to 2010. He was Secretary General of the European Commission, which is a key position for understanding how Europe makes its decisions, and uh, Head of Cabinet for then European Commission President Romano Prodi. So we really have someone with us today who can give us a, a feel for what this means, uh, what this proposal means, and what we can expect to see going forward. Ambassador O'Sullivan, the floor is yours, or the podium, I should say. Well, thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Fran, and uh, thank you very much to the Atlantic Council for organizing this event, and thank you very much to all of you who've attended. And I'm very sorry for those of you who appear not to have seats. Uh, when we were coming down the corridor and I saw the bank of cameras, I thought, how much interest can there be in the digital single market? And I discovered, unfortunately, it was not quite for this event. Uh, there are other more important events going on next door. Um, as Fran mentioned, and as some of you know, I've been involved in, in Brussels affairs for, for a very long time. Uh, and I've always felt it's the most exciting uh, public policy job you can hold in what we've been trying to build in Europe. And today is no exception because I think the Juncker Commission really has identified jobs and growth as a top priority and really has identified a couple of very key areas where Europe needs to transform itself in order to remain competitive going into the 21st century. Uh, and this, of course, is the investment plan which uh, President Juncker launched. It's Capital Markets Union, which is, as I say, a very rare paper, which actually begins saying, here's something the Americans do better than us and we should copy them. Uh, energy union, which is of course of huge political significance, but also of major uh, economic uh, uh, and also r related to the climate change agenda. And now this very, very exciting proposal on the digital single market, which in my view is comparable to the 1992 proposals of Delors and Cofield, and I remember it very well at the time uh, uh, when this was launched, and this is really the new frontier uh, for the European economy to transform uh, 28 uh, compartilized uh, national digital markets into a single European digital market. Uh, you know, I was just reflecting on my experience with technology. I think the first time I ever saw a computer, a personal computer, was in Tokyo in 1981. <coughs> 
The first time I ever saw that you could send d data across uh, a phone line was when an American colleague, I had a little brother typewriter that I bought, which had three lines of uh, um, text that you could see. And we thought this was almost you know, the height of new technology. And he showed me how you could connect it to a modem. And I actually sent a message to his friend in California and replied. It took about an hour. Uh, but I was absolutely enthralled. And I thought, this is, this is fascinating. I then bought the, one of the first tablets, which was made by Kyocera, which is actually a ceramics firm, but which turned itself into an IT company, which was actually a little, only about the size of an iPad, about four times heavier and three times thicker. Uh, and it had its own word processing. And you could actually, I used to take it everywhere I traveled. I came here in 1992, 10 years later, and I could still use it on the visitor's program. I actually wrote my report, and, it, and you were able to download it to, the, uh, to a printer. Uh, but actually, it's a truism to say that technology has transformed our world, but actually, it's all taken much longer than I thought it would, to be quite frank. I remember the first time I saw a mobile phone, which was in 93, I think. Um, uh, uh, the first time I connected to the internet, actually the real internet, which was 96. And I remember Al Gore's information highway. I remember Martin Bangerman, the European vice president, commissioned vice president, who talked about the information society. And they were all promising this amazing transformation. But it's taken an awful long time. But it is here. And I think this is what is truly exciting, that we have now really reached a tipping point in the technological revolution, uh, that this, uh, <coughs> this, this technology is everywhere. And uh, we have you know, Industry 4.0. We have the Internet of Things. We have 3D printing. I mean, we really are. Uh, absolutely now entering a digital era uh, definitively. And this is so crucial for Europe, and therefore the proposal of a digital single market is, in my view, uh, very timely and absolutely necessary. Now, I'm not going to go through the proposal in detail. Uh, frankly, I'm not sure I understand all of it, because it requires a fairly detailed knowledge of some, some fairly arcane stuff. Uh, the most important thing is that it's an integrated package which is a roadmap of how we can get from where we are today to a, an integrated single digital market in Europe uh, a few, in a few years' time. Um, we have, as Fran quoted the figure, uh, I'm always... Kenneth Galbraith said economic forecasting was invented to make astrology seem plausible. Uh, so, um, you know, but the, the estimate is it could add as much as 415 billion euros to, to the economy. I'll, I'll take it. Uh, I'm, sure it's, I'm sure it's a big number, let me put it that way. Uh, and uh, we have seen that 80% of online sales are remain confined to national borders. And I just saw one set of figures, and I won't quote any more figures, um, that of the 100 European consumers who are buying online, 42% uh, are buying in national markets, 54% are buying from US uh, services, and only 4% are buying from EU-based, in other words, EU-wide services. That gives you the scale to which the, the European market is still extremely fragmented. And so the idea is to develop simple and effective cross-border rules for consumers and business, tacking unjustified online geo-blocking practices, reforming our copyright regime, and reducing administrative burdens arising from different VAT regimes. We will also review our telecommunication and broadcasting rules to create the right conditions for digital networks and services to flourish. We will establish a public-private partnership for cybersecurity. We will conclude the reform of our data protection legislation, review sector-specific rules for the online world, and we will also conduct a comprehensive analysis of the role of platforms in the market that will also look at the very difficult issue of illegal content on the internet because we know unfortunately there's also a darker side uh, to the internet. And we will also seek ways to increase transparency and accountability. 
This will not always mean that we will regulate, uh, and I think the Commission, the, the leitmotif of this Commission is prudence about proposing new legislation uh, or, or new regulation, but we must not be naive. There are times when regulation is necessary in order to make markets function effectively, but these choices will be made as after the different uh, discussions have taken place and the, the, the examinations have been finalized. Um, we, real disruption is not just about finding ways to avoid existing rules, it's also about innovating and creating new markets and services by levering this new technology. And success should never be penalized. And restricting, on the other hand, restricting consumer choices, being willfully unclear about what happens to our data, trying to find every conceivable way to skirt the responsibilities that are there under the rule of law, these are not accept this behavior is no more acceptable on the internet than it is uh, in, the, in, the, in the real economy. And we need the same kind of rules uh, for competition uh, to ensure uh, the good functioning of the, of the digital single market that we do for the uh, real, I'm not gonna say the real world market, but you know what I mean, for the, the, the material market perhaps is the way. So in this sense, the commission will also conduct a competition sector inquiry into e-commerce relating to the online trade of goods and online provision of services to see if there are distortions or abuses of competitive positions which need to be addressed. Uh, and we'll also work with all stakeholders to ensure that the information can truly flow freely across borders. Having highlighted the main elements of the strategy, and by the way, it's, it's, uh, there are 16 uh, uh, action points uh, in this strategy, and each of them will have their own follow-up and process. So this is really a roadmap, if you like. It's, it's setting out the agenda. Uh, it's, it's going to be a long journey, uh, but as the Chinese say, uh, even the longest journey starts with, with the first step, and the first step is to have a plan. Of course, each of these component parts will have to be debated and discussed uh, in detail, uh, and I think this is a very transparent process in which uh, all stakeholders, including those U.S. companies who are heavily vested in Europe and who, for me, actually are European companies when they're, when they're in Europe, uh, will be able to contribute to this debate, and I'm sure that the American experience uh, of the Internet and uh, uh, the, the, the di digitalization of the market economy uh, will be a very valuable contribution to this debate at all stages. And I want to emphasize, having said what it is, I want to emphasize what it's not. This is not a digital fortress Europe. I remember very well when we made the proposal for the single market in, in 1986, the Cofield, Lord Cofield White Paper, which actually had 300 pieces of legislation in annex which had to be brought forward. So this was a vast undertaking at the time. Many people said, this is Fortress Europe, this is Europe pulling the wagons into a circle and trying to uh, escape from the rest of the world. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, it emerged as a remarkably liberating, uh, transforming uh, exercise in Europe, which created uh, a much more open, uh, a much more transparent, uh, and a much more market-driven economy than was there previously. And American companies were well able to benefit from that and have benefited. And I hope the same will be true for the digital single market. Uh, that is the objective. Uh, we will need to reflect how we dock this uh, with uh, similar developments in the United States. We'll need to reflect on the interface with TTIP, uh, because there are several aspects. There's the question of data flows, whether this will be addressed in TTIP and how. There's also the aspect of standards, uh, because several of the uh, measures mentioned here will talk about the development of standards, and clearly the common agenda we have in TTIP is in future, particularly in developing new standards, that we will work upstream to try to make sure that we don't develop US standards and EU standards, which we then have to try and reconcile, but that we will try to have 
transatlantic standards uh, in, these, in these new areas. Uh, now, I don't know how the interface of the timing of TTIP is going to work with the timing of this agenda, but one way or another, either within TTIP or through the process of future cooperation that TTIP will create, we need to make sure that what happens in the creation of this digital single market in Europe is docked uh, with the, uh, uh, what is happening in the US so that we can have uh, also a transatlantic uh, market in, in this area. Uh, I think this is uh, uh, extremely uh, exciting. Uh, as I say, you know, it's difficult at my age sometimes to continue to get up in the morning and feel excited by a new initiative coming out of Brussels because I've seen, I've seen quite a lot of them. I've seen quite a lot of them come and go. But I believe this is actually a, a transformative proposal. Uh, I think it's hugely important for Europe, but I think it's also hugely important for transatlantic relations. As Fran rightly said, there will be some disagreements. Um, there will be some, some disagreements based on misunderstanding, and they perhaps we can clarify, but there will be some disagreements of substance. We will have different approaches on some issues. And as always, we'll have to work our way through those uh, and find solutions uh, because it's in both our interests uh, that Europe is a thriving digital economy, the United States is a thriving digital economy, and that the transatlantic uh, space, which is still the most important economic corridor in the world, is also a thriving uh, and functioning and uh, effective uh, digital market space across the transatlantic. So I think that's the objective, that's the spirit in which this goes forward. We were debating in a smaller group earlier whether the devil is in the detail, or as I prefer to say, God. God is in the detail, uh, and that is true that God will be in the detail of how these proposals come forward uh, and how they are debated and how they are ultimately adopted through our political process. Uh, this will also give rise probably to moments of some tension, but I'm absolutely confident uh, that we will find the right solutions in Europe under the leadership of the Commission, and it's great to see the Commission uh, really asserting its, its right of initiative and its role to, to, to give Europe a, a magnetic north in this issue, which it desperately needs in order to modernize uh, our system. Uh, we'll also uh, engage uh, with the uh, United States in how we make these two things ultimately uh, come together. So that's all I wanted to say by, by way of introduction. Um, I haven't perhaps done full justice to, the, uh, to all 16 uh, uh, proposals in the package. Uh, I'm accompanied here by Andrea Glorioso from the delegation, who I thank for all the work he's put into this, and who is uh, well able to answer any of the more detailed questions you might want to put later. Thank you very much indeed. And we now have some seats in the front, and there's a seat over there. So let's use this as a theater interval and get some of these folks seated, if we could. I, I think oh, mine is on. I think I'm privileged I have the one mic that is, is on. Um, so thank you very much, Ambassador. Uh, we're now joined on the panel by uh, Marcus Jadot. Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Industry and Analysis, who has a special focus on global competitiveness of US industry. Nula O'Connor, President and CEO of the Center for Democracy and Technology, who has served in, in top privacy-related positions at major corporations such as GE and Amazon, as well as in government, in commerce and DHS. Uh, and Dan Price, Managing Director at Rock Creek Global Advisors. He was also the top White House official in the George W. Bush administration on issues of international trade and investment. And most importantly, he's a member of the Atlantic Council Board. Um, so let me just ask you briefly, Ambassador. Um, this is an initiative, but 
what has to happen now? What, what's the next process that actually has to happen in terms of making some of this reality? Well, it's fairly classic. I mean, firstly, there will be a, probably a discussion uh, in the Council of Ministers. There'll be a discussion in the European Parliament on the on the proposal, on the the roadmap, uh, and then it will be up to the Commission to take forward each of these sixteen uh, uh, initiatives. Uh, depending on whether it's a legislative proposal or whether it is uh, an inquiry or whether it is a consultation process. So they will, if you like, they will start to go down different tracks. Uh, but uh, the important thing will be to retain the uh, holistic view of how all this adds up to the objective of creating a, a single, a digital single market. So necessarily, this is very complex uh, and some of this stuff is frankly also going to be very difficult. Uh, you talk about changing the VAT, VAT regime, you know how sensitive that is in, in Europe. You talk about changing copyright rules. I mean, this is not going to be an easy, uh, and I'm not pretending that this is now going to, we can just wave a magic wand, there's going to be an awful lot of uh, very hard work is going to have to go into preparing the proposals, uh, defending them, uh, taking them through the legislative process, surviving the inevitable attempts, which will be to pull this in one direction or the other, uh, 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 and that's that's going to be quite a challenge. But uh, this is a very good start, and I think it's it's an ambitious uh, agenda, which uh, you know will finally be taken to completion. Thank you. Let me turn to Marcus Jadot. Um, digital issues have been at the forefront of transatlantic um, issues, disputes in uh, in recent years, or at least in the, in the news. And I mean, I'm talking antitrust, safe harbor, etc. As the EU goes forward with this initiative, what are you looking for from a US government perspective? Are there warning signs or are there good things you're looking for? What, how would you look at this? Well, we're always uh, looking for good things. Uh, as the, uh, and in, in fairness to the conversation, uh, I have not yet had a opportunity to fully review the document released today. But there are concerns uh, that uh, arise from the debate uh, leading into the release. And I'll, I'll get to those. But first, we recognize the opportunity both for European consumers, uh, for European companies, and for American companies doing business in Europe of, of the concept of a uh, digital single market. Uh, and uh, it's clear that that would be good in terms of both setting up uh, an expanded uh, uh, transatlantic uh, digital market, as well as broader engagement and expansion of U.S.-EU trade. So those are, that's to the good. Uh, on the concerning end, we've certainly heard uh, voices in Europe leading up to the release that uh, lead uh, both the, the Commerce Department and U.S. industry to be concerned. But we look forward to working with the uh, European, uh, the, the ambassador obviously, and uh, the EU more generally on ensuring that the digital single market concept uh, becomes the basis for expanded trade and expanded engagement across the Atlantic. Thank you. If I could press you just a bit. Sure. Um, when you look at the European space and, and this particular set of issues, what are the obstacles that you have found or, and what would you like to see when we get through this what will be a long and complicated process, in sure. order to make US companies competitive in the European digital space. And does it, 
maintain their competitability. <laughs> um, <Well>. And <laughs> what, what do you expect or what do you see in terms of global competitiveness for both U.S. and European sure. companies in uh, this area? Well, we should start by acknowledging the openness of the European market. It is open uh, and American firms have done well in Europe uh, to the benefit of both uh, the broader European uh, economy and mm -hmm. European consumers. So uh, that's important, I think, for all of us to continue to, to acknowledge throughout this conversation. Uh, it's also important to note, to the ambassador's point, that we are the two leading economies uh, with respect to uh, digital trade and trade broadly. So there's an opportunity for the U.S. and E.U. to set global norms in the space that could benefit not only American companies uh, and European companies, but, but the entire globe. Uh, so as we, uh, it, it's important for both sides as we advance uh, the conversation that we keep in mind uh, the, the, the opportunity to set that norm uh, to uh, uh, provide a counterweight mm. to some of the policies that we've seen enacted in places like Russia and China that are both harmful to American companies but also uh, harmful to our European colleagues. Thank you. Let me turn to Nulo O'Connor. You have uh, spent much of your career thinking about privacy and information governance. And obviously, privacy is a huge issue in Europe. Do you see, I know this isn't a privacy proposal, but there are obviously elements that will impact that. And in my uh, initial read of the press release, as opposed to the real document that came out this morning, um, you there seems to be a bit of a tension between privacy, protection of privacy, but also the desire for economic growth based on digital innovations, including data mining. Do, is that a conflict? Do you see that? How do you look at that? Well, when we hear the words free flow of information, obviously that cuts both ways. So at the Center for Democracy and Technology, obviously we are concerned not only about the privacy rights of individual citizens around the world, but also with their access to information, their access to resources, their access to opportunity. And so I see much good, first of all, in the proposal, much to be happy about, much to love in, in the document, um, and much to be concerned about as well. What we see that is good is the opportunity for simplified rules for greater access to information, content, discussion, communication, creation for the individual European in their market, the breaking down of barriers and walls to that individual citizen getting access to goods, making purchases, engaging in a fully integrated digital life. That is all a great opportunity for individual speech, freedom of expression, and opportunity. But the internet does not stop at the borders of Europe any more than it stops at the borders of the United States. What we are concerned about and, and want to see fully flourish is a truly global internet. And so we, we approach this proposal with some caution. Uh, we are obviously pleased with and delighted with all the, the words that we're hearing, but we want to see obviously a fruition of a truly global, truly uh, integrated internet experience for any individual citizen around the world. And that comes with respect for the privacy rights and the regimes of the, the countries in which they are citizens, but also access to opportunity and information from other parts of far-flung parts of the globe. So thank you. Um, is there anything in this proposal that, I mean, we've had a number of US-EU privacy discussions from SWIFT and passenger name records, et cetera. And um, 
Is there anything in this proposal that shows you a way forward for the US and Europe to reach agreement on privacy issues? Or is that, is it not relevant to this? Is, or do you see things that actually could make it worse and bring up some new conflicts? Well, we talked a little bit earlier about the issue of an individualized cloud and cloud rights in your data in the cloud. Again, we want data transportability. We want individuals to ex exercise rights in their own data. The construct that we are working on at the center is the idea of the digital self and that all aspects of your digital life are part of you. And I would refer not only to the US-EU constructs around data as property, data as a human right, but I've, I've said this over and over again, many of you are bored hearing it already, that the Latin American construct of habeas data my data, myself, and that I have continuing rights in my own data, no matter where in the world they are transported, no matter where in the world I engage, that I have rights in my own kind of digital presence. I freely engage with companies, with the government, with, with other individuals, but I retain some rights and some dignity in that information. Um, that's a construct I think many of our regimes have much more in common, at least in the Europe and in the United States, that we can get to mutual kind of interoperability and compatibility in our legal regimes. I was part of the PNR, the first PNR dialogue <laughs> and, 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 uh, and negotiation when I was at Homeland Security, and those conversations go on. There's a working group right now called the Privacy Bridges Program that many of you are aware of, still seeking to find kind of mutual respect, mutual accord for the US-EU uh, conversation around data protection. I am long-term optimistic. I am short-term pessimistic. <laughs> I, I don't necessarily think that this, this proposal does great harm or great good for, for that conversation. But we do need to get to a place where there is respect, and, and if not harmonization, at least kind of mutual compatibility, and not forget that there is the rest of the world, a phrase that I actually loathe. There is an entire <laughs> globe around which we need to be forging a dialogue around data, respect for the individual. Thank you. So Dan, let me turn to you. Um, You've done a lot of work on trade issues. How does this intersect with TTIP, or should it intersect with TTIP? And are there particular parts of it? I mean, the ambassador mentioned some of that. Is that the kind of thing that you would envision as, as someone who was very much involved in US trade policy in the past and still currently through uh, your corporate partners? Well, the short answer is yes. Uh, I don't see how one does a TTIP any more than one does a TPP without a strong chapter on digital economy that uh, imposes disciplines on localization mm -hmm. uh, and deals with a variety of issues relating to cross-border data flows, uh, to online and internet services, uh, and that charts a course where legitimate regulation is still permissible under traditional GATS-type notions. Uh, but one has disciplines for what is increasingly a dominant part of the global economy. Um, and <clears throat> in this regard, uh, you know, I, I, I well understand that you know, part of this initiative is to reduce borders among the 28. Right. Uh, but I don't think the project of reducing borders among the 28 should necessarily forestall discussions of both the downstream norms uh, that both the EU and the US would subscribe to on data localization and promoting cross-border data flows, as well as uh, establishing a framework for the upstream norms on standards. 
I, I think I'll stop there, but I do have a question for the ambassador. And I have a question for you, and I'll okay. let you answer that, and then you can ask your question, because I want to go back to Ambassador O'Sullivan, and then I'm going to open it to the floor. Are there other things in this proposal that cause you concern at this point? I mean, we know this is a long process. There will be specific pieces of legislation that come up. But at this point, are there things that make you cautious about this proposal? Yes, uh, many. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Ambassador O'Sullivan has helpfully, both in his op-ed and here this morning, provided assurances, which I think are most welcome, uh, that the aim of this initiative mm -hmm. is not to create national champions uh, at the expense of global companies that are already operating in the EU market, that it is not the intent of this initiative to make up for the fact that, as some have stated, uh, Europe has missed a step in the mm -hmm. development of the digital economy, and that uh, the goal of these policies is non-discriminatory, not protectionist, and open-ended. Uh, those are all very welcome assurances. Uh, there are several ways, though, of reading a number of these 16 points, uh, some charitably, and then there are some. <laughs> Never known you to be too charitable. <laughs> Thank you, David. Uh, and, and then some readings that are less charitable. And uh, without characterizing which reading my question is, one thing jumped out at me. I mean, there's the usual things about the scope of regulation versus cross-border data flows. Is data protection a surrogate for protectionism? Da, da, da. You know, we've, we've got all that yeah. that's you know, in here and up front. Uh, the interesting question was in respect of uh, item four called building a digital economy. And there it says, the commission sees a need for action in the areas of ownership and access to data in big data and analytics in cloud services, in open data, and science. The generation, collection, and aggregation of large sets of information creates new value and potential for consumers, firms, and public authorities. So I was just wondering what this is about. Um, because I've heard a number of member governments in Europe say, you know, it's really something these uh, these companies come in and they generate or collect data right. on our citizens, right, right. on our companies, and then they repackage them and sell them, and we, the government, don't get any value out of that. Right. So I I'm wondering how this related to that sentiment, and sorry for the long question. Ambassador. Um, well, uh, maybe if I could just make a couple of remarks. I mean, firstly, to, to Nula's points, I... I I agree. I mean, we are actually having a parallel discussion on uh, data privacy through the Umbrella Agreement and the Safe Harbor Agreement. And I hope that uh, when this is concluded and uh, these discussions are ongoing, they've been going rather well, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing increasingly positive echoes that maybe a, a solution will be found. Uh, and if we find a solution on this, then I think to a certain extent we have 
put the, the difficulties of the sort of Snowden affair behind us, and we have a, a solid base for going forward, including the very helpful proposal by Congressman Sensenbrenner to give uh, EU citizens equivalent judicial uh, redress uh, under the US system. So I, I think that is actually uh, an area, it, it's, it's a huge agenda, and it's not finished with, with that, because it, you know, this is, th th these complex issues, and by the way, you have a very healthy debate here in the US about these issues, they're very real. Uh, the, the privacy issue and the internet, uh, I think we all as citizens feel quite exposed uh, uh, in all kinds of ways, uh, and how, how, how you manage this free flow of data, which we want, with uh, the respect for our privacy and so forth is, is, is going to be a continual sort of struggle th through this process. But I, I think we have a, we have a, a process addressing that, and, and this, this proposal, in my view, will not cut across that. Um, on the question of, you know, let's go straight global, uh, maybe just a word of caution. Uh, you know, you need the building blocks. What we're trying to do is we've got 28 sort of se segregated markets which we're trying to turn into a European single market. Of course the ambition is to dock this uh, with the global, ultimately transatlantically and ultimately globally. But you have to give us the time and the space to actually firstly build the EU building block of that global picture because I think we will get much better results if we can put into effect this agenda uh, first, or, or at least, uh, I'm not necessarily saying it has to be completely sequen sequential, but we need, we need to sort this out between ourselves, and there is going to be a fairly vigorous debate in Europe on some of this stuff, but we need the space to do that uh, so that we can then build this di digital single market and then discuss how we, how we uh, put the two together. And I, I absolutely agree that in TTIP, of course, we will need to address the issue of data flows, uh, uh, which would probably be easier if we found solutions for the uh, safe harbor and the umbrella agreement. Uh, and we will need to uh, look at the issue of standards uh, as well. Uh, to Dan's point, uh, I, I'm not sure I have all the answers. Uh, what I read this to be as uh, to promote the f free movement of data in the European Union uh, and to uh, take away restrictions which are not related to the protecting of personal data. So it's, it's about interoperability, uh, it's about uh, more, more, more freer flowing of data. But I don't disagree on this issue as on many others. Uh, as we've said before, God or the devil is in the detail, and then you'll have to see what the specific proposals are. Uh, and of course, proposals can be adjusted a bit to the left or a bit to the right, and it's only when you actually have very specific proposals on the table that a definitive judgment can be made uh, about whether this uh, creates a more open and transparent uh, market or whether it in some way could be uh, targeted at making the market uh, more restricted but I emphasize the, the, the strong spirit, and I think you see this in, in all the language and everything that's been said, is this is about liberating 28 uh, uh, siloed uh, national markets into a true European single market, which can only be a huge contribution to transatlantic uh, trade and indeed to, to global trade. Great. Let me bring in members of the audience, and as you stand, do we have a microphone? No? Okay. Can we donate one of these? Okay. And I saw this gentleman back here in the corner first. Yes. I'm seeing a lot of hands, so please keep your question brief. Who's first? This gentleman here. Yes. And identify yourself. Thank you. Uh, Jim Berger from Washington Trade Daily. A uh, question for Mrs. Jadot. Um, I hope I pronounced it right. Jadot? Close enough. <laughs> okay. Um, is it correct? You said the U.S. has no concerns with, with this uh, policy? And, uh, is no, it that is not what I said. <laughs> in fact, then, I, I know. Said and, then, and then what are the concerns? I mean, is, is it, can it be viewed as a, a, 
endangerment to the uh, U.S. policy of an open and free internet? Well, look, I, I certainly uh, said that we have concerns. Uh, I also said that uh, while uh, we had an opportunity to review an earlier draft, we've not fully reviewed uh, the document that was released today. Uh, having said that, uh, there are concerns. Uh, we believe that there are risks uh, signaled, uh, certainly in the uh, debate leading up to the release, where, it, as I mentioned to the ambassador earlier, we saw both uh, or heard both voices of, to use his uh, uh, analogy, uh, God and the devil. Uh, so uh, our concerns uh, revolve around uh, some of the voices that we heard that suggested that the reforms were a path to uh, disrupting or removing U.S. firms from the European market. Um, that is unhelpful. Uh, but again, I'm certainly, uh, I take a great deal of uh, reassurance from the ambassador's comments uh, and look forward to working together closely to, uh, it's the problem with handheld mics, uh, <laughs> working together closely uh, to um, uh, use this as an opportunity to uh, further engage our partners in, in Europe and to build a stronger uh, transatlantic digital market. Okay. Let me bring in this gentleman here. Identify yourself, please. Yes, um, I'm Randall Fort with Raytheon. Um, Ambassador, you mentioned the need for time and space to create building blocks. Fortunately, the technology doesn't stop. Um, it continues to grow exponentially at, 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 at astonishing rates. Just two examples, the Internet of Things going from a handful of billions today to as many as a trillion objects in 2030, and 3D printing, which has the potential to disintermediate entire segments of manufacturing. Um, and so I just, it, how much, um, flexibility and how much um, opportunity are you going to be looking at in the future, not just coming up with a perfect policy for today, which simply will not suffice for tomorrow and five and ten years from now? Yes, go ahead. Sorry. Well, you're, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, the, I mean, I, I did say at the beginning that the speed of change of technology has actually been somewhat slower than I, I expected and we were told to expect uh, when, when, it, when this all began. But I do agree that we have now reached a sort of critical mass. And, and this is a challenge for uh, regulators everywhere. Um, it's not unique to Europe as to how we keep pace with this. Uh, but we're going to have to walk and chew gum. I mean, the fact is we have to build this digital single market space within the EU. This is like all the exercises. I mean, you know, the EU is a remarkable achievement. Uh, what we have built and what we have done since 1956, it's incredible. Nobody has ever tried to do anything like this in the history of the planet. From functioning democracies of sovereign countries, which started as six, to now have 28 and build a common economic space, a common currency, a common political space, a common foreign policy. But it takes time because we are democratic. And we want to remain democratic, so we want our citizens engaged. So I agree with you. Uh, I've always said that uh, the building of Europe is a race between integration and irrelevance, uh, and I continue to believe that. Uh, and Jacques Delors always used to say was that the risk was that Europe didn't change fast enough to keep up with change in the rest of the world. It's a huge challenge. 
but we cannot go faster than our democratic process permits, and that is the ultimately the most important aspect, the democratic legitimacy of what we do. So we have to try and build this new process. I agree, even as the goalposts are sort of shifting, if I can mix my analogies, uh, and we have to manage that. And I agree this will be a challenge, uh, even as some of the proposals are made, or when the proposals are made a year from now, maybe the, the technology is already uh, slightly changing what you need to do. But I repeat, this is not a, a challenge which is unique to Europe. Uh, I think it's a challenge for regulators everywhere. Uh, the, the, the internet is hugely disruptive in that sense. It challenges our traditional ways of, of doing things, and this is good, but it also there is also a downside, which we know, whether it's data protection, whether it's uh, uh, terrorism on the internet, whether it's uh, cybercrime, whether it's uh, cybersecurity, whether it's uh, all of these terrorism. So, you know, we have to find a way of reconciling the huge benefits of an open global uh, internet system with the necessity nonetheless to have some rules and, and regulations and safeguards uh, and uh, this is the, but the, the, the thrust of what the Commission is proposing to today is really to do this now on a European level, to create a European digital space, uh, and I think that can only be seen as a very positive step for Europe and, and for, for, for the rest of the world. So let me get Jean-François and then behind him. Thank you. Jean-François Wattin, French uh, Treasury Steel. Two questions. Uh, number one, do you think it's fair, really, uh, to present things as the European way and the American way on issues like privacy, lots of concerns on part of individual Americans, on competition? Uh, nickname of Google in the Silicon Valley is the company that used to do no evil. Uh, on taxation, when I look at the debates in the Senate uh, two years ago on uh, on Apple, uh, I, I think we maybe sh should be more careful about how we want to uh, point out the American way or the European way. Second question, much uh, quicker: Who owns the internet? <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to take a stab at those? Uh, Marcus, do you think we should be talking about a U.S. way versus a European way? The hope is that we wouldn't. Uh, we have. We have a great deal of, of shared values, and uh, it's uh, the point I attempted to make earlier uh, is that if we uh, there's an opportunity between the EU and the U.S. to develop global norms that will benefit our citizens, uh, those uh, owners of the internet, uh, as well as U.S. and European firms. So we certainly have uh, shared values on both sides of, of the Atlantic, but we're also democracies. So I, I certainly understand uh, the, the ambassador's point that uh, democracy can be messy and it moves at its own pace. Uh, it, there are, however, uh, principles that informed by our shared values that uh, we hope would be uh, the, the pillars of any attempt at reforming, uh, at reforms in, in, in the U.S. or in the EU. Um, and those, I believe, uh, are common on both sides of the Atlantic and should re be reflected in our public policy debates as well as in the eventual outcomes 
uh, that those debates produce. And I would point out it's also very difficult to figure out who's an American firm and who's a European firm in this environment. Yeah. More, more American than the Eastern Brussels and the issue that they are European than the Eastern. No, I, I, the fact is, I mean, I don't know if there's a, a US way and a European way, but on this issue, as on other issues, you have a strong corpus of, of regulation and law which, which makes your market function. We have a strong corpus which makes our market function. And let's face it, these things have not always, you know, come out identically. Uh, and so in that sense, yes, there is a sort of American approach to certain issues which is enshrined in the way they do it. They do it. It's not that we don't have, share the same problems or that we haven't tried to address the same issues, but sometimes we find slightly different solutions. You know uh, mankind's ability to invent different ways of doing things. You've only to look at the issue of sockets and plugs around the world. <laughs> the ingenuity of human invention to create differences is, is enormous, uh, uh, even when it, you, know, you would think there was no need to do so. So that's just the way it works. And the whole challenge of the transatlantic agenda, it seems to me, is precisely how do we build the bridges between these two things, which nonetheless respect the integrity of the democratic rulemaking process on both sides of the Atlantic, because that's crucial uh, for both of us, and the, the autonomy of the regulators on both sides and so on. So that's the challenge of the TTIP agenda and taking it forward, and I think that this will be an area uh, where we will have discussions, uh, but I think uh, I entirely agree that we have shared values, and, and in the end, that's, that, that should be one of the, one of the most Im Im important elements. Let me go here. Whoops, Marie. I'm Mike Nelson. I work for Cloudflare, which is a startup doing web security. I also teach classes at Georgetown. One of them is on what's shaping the net. We look at a lot of different decisions that are determining how e-commerce grows. So this question isn't for the ambassador because I think it will be too embarrassing for you to answer. <laughs> My goal is to get some context. I'm a physicist. I like numbers. If we look on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 is the most influential, and this proposal is about a 6, where would other forums fall? So the OECD is making decisions in this space. Mm -hmm. What goes on in the boardroom of Amazon and Facebook certainly will influence this. Uh, the Council of Europe, another important place. And recently we heard a lot about what NSA is doing with the German intelligence agencies. <laughs> so on a scale of one to 10, where would those other things fit? And are they about as important or more important than this proposal? So I think, Nula, you wanted to... I'm going to combine Mike's question with uh, the second half of your question, which we didn't discuss, and the first was a great one as well. Who owns the internet, and kind of where? And you're right. Where is the decision-making power? And I had the same reaction to the ambassador's comments that I think the gentleman from Raytheon has, which was, "The internet waits for no man." Right? It, we are going. So, as my, our beloved founder at CDT, Jerry Berman, would say, "Get on and ride the wave because it's going." Right? And Mike makes a very good point that. The ingenuity and the innovation that's coming from small companies all over the world, all in every part of the globe, as well as the big established brand names, are what is driving a future that looks nothing like what today. So as exciting as what we've seen in the last 20 years, you ain't seen nothing yet. The world that our children will live in will look profoundly different and will be informed in every aspect of their lives by the devices and the decision-making behind the devices. And so we do need to get to some good rules. And there are some global shared, at least some regionally shared values, I think, around individual kind of voice and consent and choice. Um, and we haven't, we haven't touched enough on the government issues. And that is one, I think, 
missing element of the proposal is the discussion of surveillance and the intrusion of government kind of presence into the most private and mundane and minute areas of our personal lives. And, and I'm surprised to see that omission from this proposal. We often hear that from the Europeans that they know more about surveillance or, or, or counterterrorism than, than we do in the United States. Having been born in Northern Ireland, I would say that that might be true, actually. Um, but it is an issue that to, if people are going to trust their digital communications, they need to know that they will be sacrosanct and that they will be kept safe from the prying eyes of their governments or other governments as well. So I would say you've pointed to some of the, the key drivers, which are the boardrooms, but also the startups and the garages and the, the attic bedrooms of, of the innovators of the next generation as profoundly shaping what the internet of the future comes, comes to be in context and, and in conflict sometimes with the decisions that are being made by many of our own governments. Let me get uh, briefly. I'll be very brief. Like I, I think uh, what governments do matter, but uh, it's clear that developments on the internet uh, and around the internet has been driven by the private sector. So what the private sector does matters more than uh, what government does. Uh, we should focus on being enablers of, uh, of uh, investment and innovation, uh, but uh, I think it would be a mistake for any of us to assume that government policy will determine innovation going forward on the internet. No. Good morning, Susan Grant, Consumer Federation of America. Um, thank you, Ms. O'Connor, for your remarks about government surveillance. Very important. Uh, my question is for um, the ambassador, and also I invite Mr. Jado to respond if he cares to. And it's about the function of the safe harbor agreement as a way of bridging the differences between data protection in the US and um, the EU, because government surveillance wasn't the only thorny issue concerning the safe harbor. There were also, and still are, I think, mm -hmm serious concerns about the effectiveness of the agreement in terms of self-certification by companies, in terms of no proactive attempts to see what um, companies were really doing and how that comports with what they agreed to under the safe harbor, and the total lack of enforcement by the EU and only enforcement by the FTC when they happen to be investigating a company for something else. Great. So what is it about the safe harbor agreement that you think is going to be different and will work better now? Safe harbor. Well, uh, Look, I, we, we could spend a long time on, on safe harbor. I'll, just to say that a number of the issues that you raise are in fact being addressed in the revision of the safe harbor agreement, and we hope that the sort of uh, safe harbor 2.0, or whatever we're going to call it, uh, will uh, uh, address some of the, the concerns which have arisen since we first uh, agreed to it. Uh, I think, but I take the point that people have been making, uh, the difficulty of regulation is that the world moves on more quickly, and therefore probably this, this cannot be a static process. We'll probably have to revisit it uh, uh, again in a few years, uh, it, because it's, 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 it's a constant, it's like painting the, the Firth of the Fourth Bridge, you know, no sooner have you finished than you have to start again, uh, because this is a, this is a, a process that uh, will, will, will continue to challenge us in, in the reconciliation of the openness and the, the free flow of data that we all want with the concerns. And I, I, I take Nula's point about government surveillance. 
Uh, as a private citizen, I have to say I'm sort of 50-50 equally worried about what governments are doing and what big companies are doing with my data. Frankly, I'm not, <laughs> it's not just the government. Uh, I'm, 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 I, I, as a private citizen, I emphasize, I you know, sometimes think about just how much information is out there and, and who's, who's able to use it. But this is the new world in which we live, by the way, and, and we just have to get used to it. And uh, we just have to find the right balance of letting it all flow, letting it happen, and at the same time having certain safeguards uh, and procedures in place which do provide some guarantees, uh, both against uh, excessive government intervention or against abuses by, by, by companies. Can I just um, follow up very briefly and then pass to on, on safe harbor? There is this case that's coming up before the European Court of Justice uh, in which this uh, law student has alleged that safe harbor did not provide adequate um, uh, safeguards for his, for his data. Are the, potentially, that could have a huge consequence in Europe. Uh, are you worried about that? Is this something that uh, is getting a lot of attention in Brussels and here in, in Washington in terms of these negotiations that you all have been working on to revamp Safe Harbor? And now here's this case that could be uh, potentially very uh, challenging. Well, uh, this, is, this is an illustration of, you know, the fact that we live in democracies, we live under the rule of law, people take court cases and uh, eventually you can get judgments and then you have to take on board what the, what the court says. Uh, we don't even yet have an opinion uh, of the Advocate General uh, on this case. I think that's due mm -hmm. in June. Right. Uh, but one of the thing I can say is that this is about Safe Harbor 1.0 and we're negotiating Safe Harbor 2.0 and uh, it may be, I don't know, that if there are criticisms made against uh, the, the, the previous agreement that the new agreement uh, has already perhaps, uh, if we reach a conclusion, uh, has already addressed some of these issues. But I, we, we need to wait and see. I mean, the court is the court at the end of the day. We have to wait for the judge. We have to wait for the opinion of the Advocate General and, and the judgment. But we are not letting this paralyze us. Uh, uh, we are still continuing and hope to conclude uh, the work that we have in hand uh, uh, to uh, have a, a revamped uh, Safe Harbor Agreement very shortly. Do you well want to say? OK. Uh, additional questions? Yes. Uh, let me get a microphone to you. I saw some additional group come back to you after that. Hi, my name is Hamza Shaban. I'm a reporter with BuzzFeed News. Uh, this question is for Ambassador O'Sullivan. Can you say more about the assessments that will take place um, examining the market power of American tech companies? Well, I mean that's that's your that's your interpretation. Uh, uh, it's a um, there is uh, there are two there are two sort of um, uh, inquiry elements in this. There is a, a, a there will be a, a reflection on the role of platforms and the issues which arise there, and there will be completely separate. And this is a, a, a fairly routine bit of uh, EU. Um, uh, policy, uh, uh, a sector inquiry into e-commerce, which is a competition issue which looks to see if there are uh, uh, unfair barriers to the functioning of e-commerce. So these are two separate uh, um, processes. One is uh, part of the, the competition antitrust uh, procedures uh, and that will look at uh, all the issues in e-commerce and I don't think it's particularly targeted at American companies more than any other uh, operators in this area. And then there is the, the looking at the, the consultation and the reflection on online platforms uh, which will also address there. And there I agree probably uh, certainly the, the, the very strong presence of the US companies in, in the area of platforms will certainly be, not because they're US, but 
they will be more more directly probably affected by by that. But I refl I, I repeat, these are th these do not start with an a priori about what the what the what the outcome will be. It is simply that we feel the need uh, to look under the competition rules at how the whole area of e-commerce is functioning, and uh, in terms of the the good functioning of a, of an open uh, and def and effective internet, how the 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 effective platforms are, are they uh, as transparent in their pricing in their relationships with different suppliers and links, uh, how all this works and, and whether this is uh, functioning correctly with, without any, uh, as I say, a priori about what the conclusions might be. So those are the two, the two, the two bits of, uh, if you like, further work which are non-legislative, which will be taken forward and uh, uh, it will be, uh, of course, very open to all the interested parties to make their points and, and present their case uh, as part of either of these processes. Do you have any idea of the timeline? I, I, I'm looking at Andrea. I don't know. Was there a specific? There a we will launch the, the general e-commerce. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Uh, if I remember correctly, the general e-commerce assessment is going to be launched soon. We hope to conclude by the end of 2015 or beginning of 2016. The sector-specific competition inquiry, that is very difficult to predict, but uh, our assessment is that it will not be concluded before mid-2016 the inquiry phase. Thank you. Over here. Uh, hi, uh, Dave Thomas with Inside US Trade. Thank you for taking my question. I was hoping to kind of get the panel's thoughts on uh, on how the digital single market could impact the, uh, the TTIP talks. With uh, this with these 16 proposals kind of looking at not only just the free flow of data, but also intellectual property, copyright reform, data privacy, is it even, should we expect the EU to kind of maybe take a pause uh, with respect to negotiating those areas in the TTIP talks? And I guess relatedly with Safe Harbor, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, with, I guess, proposals or provisions in here talking about data privacy, could that possibly change, I guess, maybe what the EU is going to expect from U.S. companies under Safe Harbor? Uh, should we expect maybe once these provisions are completed, for instance, should we expect a Safe Harbor 3.0 uh, or 2.5? Uh, Ambassador, why don't you take a crack at it first? Well, uh, look, you... The one thing we know in Europe is you, if you say everything is linked, and you, you, you end in paralysis. So you, you have to divide it up, as one trade, American trade negotiator used to say, into bite-sized chunks. And that's what this uh, proposal attempts to do, to identify 16 areas which we take forward as the building blocks. Uh, we're not going to stop doing everything else. We're not going to stop negotiating TTIP. Uh, we will work very hard on TTIP. And we will just have to see at any given moment when we conclude TTIP, if it's next year, uh, we'll have to see where we've got to on some of this stuff and, and what, what ha the implications that has. But our commitment uh, to producing an ambitious 21st century uh, TTIP agreement uh, is undiminished. And, and we're certainly not going to uh, slow that down because of we're trying to build a, a, a digital single market. Uh, and equally on, on Safe Harbor, let's, let's get to Safe Harbor 2.0, and, and then we will see. Uh, and the one thing I think everyone has been saying is, in this world of the internet and digital, uh, nothing is static. So nothing is is definitive. Uh, this will be a constant process of, of adjusting uh, regulations and practices to, to new realities, uh, and this is an endless, uh, an endless process. Uh, but I emphasize the, the 
do not lose sight of what this proposal is trying to do. It is trying to create something which currently is not there, which is an integrated digital single market within the 28 countries of the European Union, which is the largest economy in the world, which is the largest you know, and wealthiest 500 billion, 500 billion consumers, 500 million consumers. Uh, and this is a missing element in our uh, development, which we now absolutely have to uh, work towards, and we will do that, but not to the detriment of our relationship with the United States or any ongoing commitment to negotiations which we have. Thank you. Dan, do you want to make a response? No, I think the ambassador said it very well. Okay. Let me get one final question back here. Thanks. Uh, Michael Cornfield, George Washington University. This is for all five of you. I'm wondering, as, as this goes forward, whether any of you are going to be conducting public opinion research. And the reason I ask is that while many of these issues are very arcane, data privacy, government surveillance, data security are not. And it would seem to me that it would be a good thing as you develop your proposals to develop a better understanding of what people think. So by public opinion, I don't mean holding public comment sessions, because then you'll only get the squeaky wheels. I mean polls, focus groups, analysis of social media texts, that sort of thing. Are, are, is any of that in the works from the Atlantic Council to the European Commission to CDT to US government to your, your private firm? At the Atlantic Council, we don't have plans right now to do that kind of work, but it's not, it's not uh, I wouldn't preclude it. Um, it would depend how our new project develops. But I want to have each of the panelists have an opportunity to respond to that and to uh, also pick up any other things that they need that they want to respond to. I want to start actually with you, yes. Nula, because uh, I understand you may have to slip out. So I want to give you and then Dan, and then we'll come back here. And I do apologize. That's terribly rude, but I have another speaking engagement going solo in a half an hour on Capitol Hill. So. On the, the internet research, we in fact are, and we are partnering with Pew Internet Life. I really commend to you the work of Lee Rainey and his team. They researched and released a very big report on Americans' attitudes post-Snowden. Thank you, Ambassador, for saying the Snowden affair sounds very dramatic. I, I'm instead of summer of Snowden, I'm going to call it the Snowden affair, um, and it showed a dramatic uptick in the chilling effect of perceived or real surveillance on searches, on language, on engagement, on behavior online. And when I say dramatic, I say you know, 15, 16, 18, 20% of individuals polled said they changed their behavior online or did not do a search or did not use a particular word. That doesn't sound like a 50% you know, tipping point. That's a lot of people. 20% of Americans, you know, adult Americans, is a lot of people changing their behavior. I think Pew will continue. We will partner with them and with others. You're absolutely right. We need voice of individual, and there are more opinions on privacy than there are people in the world, so it is hard to get one, you know, but I do think there are core values and core ways to operationalize the respect. When I say catch the wave, I mean catch the wave of innovation, not of the free flow of my data bits going anywhere in the world without my kind of knowledge and, and awareness. I do have some concerns about that. I do want to leave with um, the platform neutrality or platform liability issues. We are very concerned with the voice of the individual as speaker, as creator, and we do not want to see platforms become intermediate kind of liability, uh, you know, a protection or, or censors in that dialogue in the global free flow of discourse and information. 
of course we understand the very real concerns about terrorism and hate speech and and the heart as you point out the dark side of the internet but we you know are, i've become even more of an ardent free speech kind of uh, fanatic in in this role and i really do believe that the free flow of information you know the good news and good speech will will trump um but i do think you know i, I applaud the the ambassador and the, and the team that's worked on this very difficult uh, evolution of this document and we are looking forward to being part of the dialogue going forward so thank you thank you very much Nola. Pass to Dan. Wrap up uh, comments. I, I'm not worried that public opinion polling won't play a role in the political process going forward. <laughs> uh, well done, Dan. Uh, <laughs> while uh, the Commerce Department doesn't do public, uh, well, those are not tools that we use. Uh, I'm confident that uh, our uh, commitment to both being a voice of uh, the uh, American business community and the broad cons consultation process that we have in place, as well as Dan's uh, very uh, astute point, uh, will inform our, our uh, decision making going forward. Ambassador. Well, I, I mean, I think public opinion polling can be a useful supplementary tool, but I come back to my point, we're, we're a democracy. Uh, we have elected parliamentarians, we have uh, the members of the European Parliament, we have the ministers in the European Council, that's where our decisions get taken, and this does reflect public opinion. Uh, of course, representative democracy is uh, an imperfect system, as Winston Churchill said, uh, you know, but it's better than all the others, uh, and uh, I think we cannot substitute uh, opinion polling for the, the functioning of the democratic process, which is, what, which is how all decisions in the European Union on the future of the digital single market will be, will be taken. Uh, and I think that's the point I want to emphasize. I mean, I've made it several times, but I really want to emphasize it because this, this, there are some difficult issues in here, some very tricky issues, uh, issues which will, about which the, the, the public will, will have views and they will transmit those views to their, to their ministers, to their members of parliament, uh, and, and then the debate will, will take place. But I, I, I think the key message I want to leave with you is that once again, the European Commission has shown its crucial role in the building of the European project by putting a very ambitious magnetic north forward on this digital single market by showing that Europe has to join the 21st century in this area. We have to accept change, we have to accept disruption, and we have to embrace the digital uh, economy. Uh, nonetheless, with all the safeguards uh, that we need about privacy, uh, about surveillance, uh, uh, about data flows, and so forth. Uh, but the, the, the fundamental leitmotif of this proposal is openness and embracing the digital single market in Europe and connecting that to uh, the transatlantic uh, uh, area and indeed more globally. Though I must say, uh, I think there's considerably less enthusiasm for an open internet uh, elsewhere in the world than there is in, in the US and, and the EU. So, um, and uh, on the question of who owns the internet, I would like to say hopefully nobody, um, but I must say I find the Chinese experience quite scary. Uh, when I used to go to Beijing and you'd log into your hotel and you'd try to find some websites and you couldn't get them, you suddenly realize that governments actually can control the internet. Uh, and I always sort of assumed it wasn't possible. I don't know how much money they spend, I don't know how many people they've got doing this, but they actually do quite an effective job. So, unfortunately, um, the internet 
is a fantastic tool and shouldn't be owned by anyone. Uh, but uh, you know, we have seen dem powerful demonstrations that it can be manipulated and it can be uh, used uh, as a tool of propaganda, unfortunately. So we have to also take that into account in, 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 in the way we go forward. Oh, I don't think anyone. Um, thank you very much. Thanks to all of you. I think we've, we've had a really thorough discussion of the proposal that came out today and of the way forward. I anticipate that we're going to have many more discussions here at the Atlantic Council. And so I look forward to welcoming all of you back and our panelists back, I'm sure, uh, several times in the future. And thanks again to all of you for coming and especially to those who stuck it out standing during the whole time. Thank you. <laughs>